What I would like to say, we have come a long way because, as I said, in the beginning, English people didn't know much about us and we didn't know much about English people. But we have learned a lot now. Both sides have learned a lot from each other and we have come a long way, even though things could be still be better, but we are learning. So things, I hope things will get better, you know. None of us are perfect, but we are working at it. Hello and welcome to Geek Sweat. Today's episode is about Small Axe, Steve McQueen's collection of five films about West Indian immigrants in London from the 1960s to the 1980s. To help us discuss these topics in depth, Trevor and myself are joined by our mums, Sarah and Elizabeth, who lived through some of the British history covered in these movies. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Geek Sweat. Um, this episode is is a hot topic. I think it is a hot topic. Is it not, Trevor? It's a review sweat because we're oh, doing series. Oh, it's a review sweat. It's a review yeah. sweat. But there you go. <laughs> it's a review sweat. And today we're going to be looking at um, Steve McQueen's um, the, the the series of five films that were commissioned by the BBC um, called Small Axe. Small Axe was five um, different films, um, all all directed by Steve McQueen. I think. That's correct, yeah. That's correct. And um, so we're going to join us here for a bit of a difference today. A bit, we're going to um, steal a bit from the Adam and Joe show. And we're going <laughs> to get um, going to get our mums involved. So we've got my mum, uh, Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth. Um, I'm going to call her mum. But everyone yeah. else is going to call her Elizabeth. <laughs> Even Elizabeth, yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. And she's here because um, um, we, we talked about it. When it was on, I suggested she watch it, and she uh, she really enjoyed it so much. And I, I thought it might be interesting to get her point of view um, because uh, obviously we're both from Cornwall, and uh, we were nowhere near. Obviously, my mum was nowhere near living in London at the time, and but you know, me coming from Cornwall, we kind of it's a very white area. And we thought it might be interesting to get her on, and also get Trevor's mum on, who was um, who lived in London at the time. And you can see the contrast in how they um, experienced um, the the things that were documented in the um, in the program. So that's a hello to Sarah as well. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Nice to meet you. Um, Likewise. And um, finally, we got uh, Trevor. Howdy. So um, first, I mean, shall we? We'll break it down into kind of the different. There are five different films, and they all had different themes. Um, the first one we'll look at is the one um, uh, about uh, Kingsley, the schoolboy with, with um, uh, well, I'll, I'll let other people um, tell, tell you what it was about. Um, Sarah, would you like to start? Um, well, most of those that I've seen, some of them is a little bit far-fetched and some of them are spot on. One we watch about the education, the um, 1970s England mother's front room, that was correct. Definitely 76. Um, 70s style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The hair and the dressing and all that sort of stuff. The, the scarf that Hazel was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely spot on. Did it remind you of any experiences of the UK education system? Well, I think it's true. Black children met a lot of obstacles. I was entirely aware during the 70s that it was important to know who your children are speaking to, and to know the, the teachers that was teaching your children. 
I didn't want any strangers um, putting labels on my children when they go into school. Like if teachers think something wasn't quite right with the children, they would bring somebody in to speak to the child. Mm. I was definitely against somebody coming in to speak to my child without me being present. Uh, I need to let people know that I've got an older brother. So it wasn't me in the 70s going to school. It was my <laughs> older brother, Kevin. That was, that was Kevin. That was Kevin, the edu- education, I, I thought, was an interesting episode because um, I don't think it's really often talked about um, the idea about children being taken out of school and being forced into like a special education needs situation. So, um, so mum, well, I mean, mum has a bit, I mean, she has worked in schools yeah. before, um, so she might have a a different view on this um mum what did you think of um um the episode the, the episode focusing on kingsley um before before i say about um the the that episode could i just say generally um when you are said about watching a small axe mm-hmm. and i started to watch the first episode and I've, I just felt I don't want to watch this because in the back of my mind, it seemed to me at first it was um, it was the sort of hard hitting drama that the television would put on to boost their viewing figures. And I really had to remember it was reality. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was far, far worse. I had no idea. However, uh, going to education, um, as Stephen has said, I, I worked in a school as a, the assistant. I wasn't a teacher. I was the assistant. And it, I, it was just absolutely deplorable. There was, there was no care for the children. And Kingsley, um, the way he was just put in that other school in in Durance and the attitude of that head teacher, um, making it sound as if he cared for that child, cared for him. Not only that, saying um, he was a Christian, well, deplorable. People like him, it does Christianity more harm than anything. Um, and that school he was sent to, soul destroying. Um, and then that Dalton report, the cultural basis there. Um, and then the that meeting with the parents to hear their comments. But at the end of it, when he went to that um, supplementary school with that lady, and to see him so happy, well, as a mother, I thought it was so emotional. And not, it didn't only help him, but to see him in his home life, his parents and his sister, to see their happiness that was brought there. It was wonderful. <laughs> That's how I felt generally about that episode. 
Do you feel that um, the way special education needs were in the 70s, it was like a poor standard across the board so that anyone sent to that school up and down the country, whether it was like London, Manchester or Birmingham or Leeds, do you think they would have faced the same kind of problem and the same kind of script that the headmaster would say to, let's say, naughty children or outsider children? I, yes, I suppose that is possible. I mean, I can't say I know um, personally of any instances, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me because, well, that just shocked me what I saw in that episode because there was no care for that boy. There And it, in in the playground, the teacher there, I mean, to her, it was just a job to get money. I couldn't see any empathy with those children or care. Okay. Um, deplorable. Was it a coloured child? Um, yeah, Kingsley. This was when Kingsley was the coloured child. I think Elizabeth was talking about the teacher who was smoking the cigarettes and then... No, I thought she was talking when she was working at the school. I think, were you talking about the, the special education needs school, Elizabeth? Yes, I was. Um, yes, that's right. Yes, with the teacher in the playground. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the one where the um the, the Scottish woman was smoking in the playground, and the um that's the right. and the teacher was playing the guitar. Yeah. Another teacher was playing the guitar in the background. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, one of my 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 favourite scene in that was um. Uh, just for uh, just a bit of I don't know was it light relief or was it the most depressing thing was the guy um playing House of the Rising Sun um over and over again for um <laughs> a, you know, a song about a brothel to um kids um over and over again. <laughs> when I saw that scene first, I felt you know what he's definitely exploiting their time because of the um. It's obviously somebody who who didn't want to be a teacher, who obviously wanted to have some other career vocation. But yeah, when you actually hear the song in full length, you realise how inappropriate the setting, yeah, yeah. scene, and the person who's employed to do that role is. And it's kind of um, sad to observe that. I mean, in my experience at school, um, if you were naughty in class, you got sent out into the corridor. But if you was really naughty or you was repeated offence naughty, you didn't get sent to the corridor. You got sent to the special education needs class and you could be there for a whole day or something like that because um, you're disruptive to the mainstream's pool of kids. So I can recognise how Kingsley ends up in that pathway, you know. Is there anything more you'd like to say on the education episode, Sarah, before we move on? Well, when my... Kevin, my first child, was going to school. He said, this was at the secondary school. The teachers used to point out children and said, when you leave school, you are going to be on the dustbin and you're going to be sweeping the streets. And I thought that was very downputting, not, not very encouraging for children. Because if they think, well, that's what the teacher thinks, well, they might think, oh, well, why should I bother to learn anything? You know, so I think, that was very bad. Yeah. But um, the next episode we're going to look at is the Alex Weetle episode. Alex Weetle is um, it's a biographical um, 
uh, film uh, based on the light, and he's he's a children's author, I believe. Yeah, he's a he's written thirteen books and he's won awards. But this is the story of his early life. And um, should we go? I'll go go, go with Mum first. With, um, okay. okay. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the Alex Wheel episode? I mean, he was. Um deserted by his mother and uh, then he was in the council home which was deplorable in the classroom he was aimed for um i think it was was a fight there um he was blamed not the other pupil who was white um in and also in that episode another uh, part of it where there was that dreadful fire what was deplorable margaret thatcher sent sent sympathy to northern ireland but not the victims of that dreadful fire in london on her doorstep and i thought that was disgusting to me what stood out in that was the fact that alex was helped by his cellmate who gave him such good advice and um, told him the problem was classism, not race racism, <laughs> um, and told him that education was the key. That cellmate, when I first saw him, I thought, oh, poor chap, he's in with him. But my gosh, he helped him on the road to recovery more than anybody else. Um, he said, if you don't know your past, you won't know your future. And to see Alex reading his report, deciding to find his family and write a book, what a wonderful outcome. Did you have much trouble with the patois? Oh, no, no, no. The patois was okay. But I think there was a little bit of swearing I didn't like. The swearing was, <laughs> was not a normal thing, not like that. I think they were just swearing for the sake of swearing. Where I come from, when people swear, they swear because of anger. They're in a rage. That's why they swear to express themselves. Maybe they can't express themselves in a different way. Mm. So they swear. But this one, they were just swearing for the joke of it. Uh, um, as as Elizabeth said, that prison, the um, the cellmate, he was a great influence. When I saw him as well, I was thought, "Oh dear," but then he really turned Alex around, and he did much more for him than what the authority did. Yeah, that was very good. That was very encouraging. I think the the interesting thing about the um, series and. There were some kind of hints about the background of each individual through the opening credits because in um, the education, there was a flash of a Trinidadian flag at the beginning. So it was a Trinidadian family. And in the beginning of education, it was written in a kind of um, a courier uh, point text so that we knew we was doing a story about a writer. And I felt what was interesting is I wasn't 100% familiar with Alex Wheatle as a person, but I am familiar with that story of having to prove your identity or roots because sometimes 
when young black people or with other young black people, they need to kind of, it's almost like a right to passion. They've got to prove where you're coming from. And it was very interesting to see that he had to manage his English identity versus his Jamaican roots and almost kind of relearn, as it were, um, Jamaican culture to kind of fit in and be part of the group, even though he probably didn't have the best influences around him at that time. Uh, Sarah, what are your memories of um, the Brixton riot? I'm not, not very good. <laughs> I don't really. When when was that, Stephen? Um... 1981. Did you know there's actually four different Brixton riots, Stephen? No. The first riot. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put the um, I have to put the um, time and context into it. But there was one in. Let me see. Uh, I'm just doing a Wikipedia search just so I can get the <laughs> dates right. Um, there was one in 1981, which took place on the 11th of April 1981. There was one in 95, which took place in 28th September 1985. And there was one in 1995 that took place on the 13th of December and a one in 2011. So the 2011 one was the most recent riots with um, David Cameron. Um, the Brixton riots in 1995 was based on the death of uh, the 26-year-old uh, Wayne Douglas in police custody. And then before that, 1985 was uh, based on the shooting of Dorothy Cherry Gross by a Metropolitan Police Officer. But the one that's related to Alex Wheatle is specifically about, called uh, Bloody Saturday, which is about the confrontation between the police and protesters about the treatment of black people by the police on the street and in police detainment, which affected Alex Wheel. Oh, yeah. Um, shall we we'll move on to the one starring uh, John B. Yeager from, um, from his famous now from Star Wars films, but yeah. kind of coming back to making proper films. Um, <laughs> uh, that's uh, playing a, a young police recruit. This is a very interesting film. I like this one. It was... Um, is that I kind of I, I want to hear Sarah's thoughts on this before and the kind of the difference between the elder his dad's generation and his kind of the way he you know joined by joining the police and going against everything that his kind of father is uh, hates is that too strong a word but kind of you know yeah can I just say the synopsis Stephen whilst my mum just gathers yeah, sure, herself sure. so um the synopsis of this one for anyone listening is. After seeing his father assaulted by police officers, a young black man is driven to join the force with the hopes of changing racist attitudes from within. He soon finds himself facing both his father's disapproval and the racism in the ranks. So for me, what was interesting, and this was a story that goes back on the trail of the Jamaican story, and I think it was a good look at... Um, not just a, a Jamaican culture, but a Jamaican culture against the negative press that would have been surrounding Jamaicans in the 80s, particularly as the word yardy back in Jamaica is actually a commonly referenced term to represent somebody from the country. Whereas in the UK, the term yardy is nearly constantly meant like um, a gangster who is just so happens to be Jamaican. So, uh, so um, Sarah, um, 
what did you think of the relationship between Leroy and his father? I think the father was a little bit old-fashioned and set in his ways, while Leroy was a bit of the modern days. And I think mom a little bit wasn't too supportive at the time because she was more interested in her. So um, I think the father is cutting his mind what he wanted the son to do. And he was happy when he was working in the lab. I think he was maybe a bit, a little bit fearful of him being working with the public, facing the public, because in those days the police and the and colored people those days, there was something they didn't. Um, I think they didn't trust each other. I think that's what it was, and a little bit of fear, fear of the unknown, because I think. Those time in those days, white people weren't used to colored people. They didn't use their custom, and I think that's that's where a lot of this friction came from. And uh, maybe if he had gone into some to do something different, maybe the father wouldn't be so much against it. But I think in those days, to be a black policeman, it was like you putting your life on the line. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, could you understand the dad's point of view a little bit? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he was fearful for his safety. I yeah. think that was more than anything else. And from the fact that he had a run-in with the police as well, didn't help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mum, uh, what, uh, what did you make of red, white and blue? Well, I, um, I was very impressed that uh, Leroy his reason to join the police force wasn't to sort of take a bit of revenge on the way things were going in the community, but he wanted to change things for the better from the inside. I mean, he did well in the training, um, but the way he was treated in such a condescending way, especially in the canteen by the other police. Disgusting words on his locker, not getting back up when he was in pursuit of somebody. It's just dreadful. But I feel right at the end, his father showed respect for him when he said, that his mother said if you were digging a grave because you had no learning, he would be upset. But if he had education and chose to dig a grave, he would support you. I thought that was quite profound, really. And Levi said he felt sometimes that the earth should be scorched and replanted so something good could come out of it. Um, you, you know, I, I just think in those words, uh, there was a, a deepness in that uh, that really impressed me. He, he was a brave man. Uh, what, what did you, what did you think, Trevor? Um, well, it's, it's an interesting story again. And again, watching it, I'm learning about, I felt like I was learning about Leroy Logan for the first time because I only came into contact with his name uh, regarding the uh, Damiola Taylor and Stephen Lawrence inquiry. But I wasn't aware that he had spent up to um, 30 or 40 years in the police force before that. So 
Um, he's been very um, a big part of, um, I'd say, Black British history, and, and uh, kind of unknowingly, and perhaps in the dark chapters of um, Black in, in uh, criminal history in, uh, in Britain. But um, I felt the story did some interesting things. I mean, there was a clever in-joke uh, when Leroy, who's played by um, Star Wars John Boyega, as you've already said, states he's going to join the force and his cousin, Lee John, who's actually a famous musician, asks if he's going to become a Jedi, which I think was an ironic um, touch or pointer to the fact that um, Boyega was a stormtrooper. And um, I felt like it was interesting watching a black police officer who was getting attacked from both sides, not just the criminals on the street, but also his family to some extent about his choice of joining the police and black people in the community who kind of saw him as a traitor. And it was interesting that me and my mum had this conversation about whether the black people in the community would see him as a traitor because he was ignoring what was happening to black people by the way they were treating the police, or if he was joining in with the police so he could, um, he, he could continue the institutionalised racism. So there were some really interesting elements in it. And I like the way that they used the, um, the family dinner as a means of the father kind of reconciling his feelings towards the um, decision that his son had made. Because up until then, the family was kind of separate and they were kind of divided and the family dinner kind of brought them back together to some extent. Okay, let's move on to my favourite one because I'm a sucker for courtroom dramas and that's the Mangrove. Uh, Mangrove is the story of the Mangrove Nine. It's the Mangrove Nine. Um, So apparently Mangrove Nine tells the story of Frank Fritchlow, whose West Indian restaurant Mangrove was a lively community hub in London's Notting Hill. And in a time of blatant racial discrimination, Critchlow finds himself and his drug-free business uh, the brunt of relentless police raids. In a bid to stop the discrimination uh, and the ruination of their community base, Frank and his friends take to the streets in a peaceful protest in 1970. But as a result, nine men and women, including Frank and the leader of the Black Panther movement, are wrongly arrested and charged with incitement to riot and afraid. Um, Mum, how did you how did you react to Mangrove? Two things stood stood out for me there. Um, the first thing was that even though they suffer such brutality from the police, and knowing the mangrove was in danger of being closed down, they supported each other. They danced in the street. They kept going. They had the motivation and determination to just be together and support each other. Um, But the other thing which stood up for me, especially in the times we are now, they had a banner saying, hands off black people. And where are we now? We have got the footballer kneeling. We have got, we have the banner saying, Black lives matter. So even though there's years in between, we are still having to 
press this and how dreadful is that? But Darkus's testimony in court was awesome and the judge was very fair and he certainly showed empathy and respect for them. So, well, well done to them. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very good. Um, Sarah, well, how, how did how did you find Mangrove? Did, do you remember the case at the time? I think I think that um, it was good that the community came together to stand up for the Mangrove because that was their meeting place. In those days, they got to make their own. There were clubs around, but not for them. So they got to provide their own entertainment. So it was good that they fight for the Mangrove. I think that the racial discrimination was horrible. But then again, a lot of that went on. That was not coming to the attention of the public. And it is still going on. Those, um, in those days, the first set of, um, what you call it, immigrants that came, you could say they paved the way for us because they were the ones with the grit, true grit. We were under the um, Commonwealth flag when we came here. We were British when we came and we were treated as if we weren't needed. And because we know we always look to England as a mother country. So when we come here, we didn't feel as if we were strangers, but we were meant to feel as if we were. But those people in those days that came, they came with determination, you know, and, you know, thank God for them. I mean, I think if there's any kind of a uh, link between the films, it's kind of the sense of community. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's a there's a definite religious aspect running through it, importance mm. of, of religion and mainly Christianity, and also a focus on kind of education and yeah. you know education uh, of everyone, not not just kind of whites or blacks, but everyone. My personal view is. Not all white people are bad, but you only need one bad apple. One bad apple and you have others that follow, follow on. Mm. But basically, personally, I never meet any discrimination. When it comes to white people, I'm always, I say, lucky with them. I always get on with them. <clears throat> and most of them, they always look out for me. So personally, I've never met any discrimination, but I know it does exist. And as I said, it's not all white people are bad people, yeah. but you only need one bad apple. Yeah, yeah. Like that policeman, he- um, Oh, PC Pulley. Yeah. <laughs> he was off another planet, completely off another yeah, planet. He was. was evil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just want to follow on to uh, my mom's comment about the, the one bad apple spoiling the car. I think one of the issues that um, the Mangrove uh, film highlighted, it wasn't that the whole police institution was racist. It was like there were corners and shadows bad policing could hide in. And it was, and the PC Pulley character is based on somebody from real life, is actually a real life person. Yeah, it kind yeah. of showed there's a sense of um, intimidation and respect for authority 
and um, experience that can be turned on its head to, because he wasn't just racially discriminating against black pioneers or pillars of the community or business owners, but inside he was indoctrinating new recruits, newly recruited police officers about the ways. I mean, the opening scene, I think, is about him in an observation fan almost trying to um, re-educate um, a police cadet or a new recruit about how he should do the policing in a slightly different way, which it, it showed you where the sinister under, undertones were. And um, I think even the judge, the way he ran his courtroom, there was a little bit of the hint of corruption in the way that he refused um, people who could attend the court that had tickets and the way that he wanted to adjourn the court and there was a coincidental melee where Dark as how had been dragged away by some wardens into the kind of the basement um, cells. You know? There's an actor called Malachi Kirby who plays Dark as Howe and yeah. his incarnation of him is absolutely excellent. If anyone's ever seen Darkest Hand in real life, done an, seen him doing interviews or even watched his TV series on Channel 4 when he was alive. I think it was called uh, The, the uh, Devil's Advocate, I think it was. Um, he's I, I remember seeing him a lot on TV when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. 80s, 90s, progressive television yeah. shows on Channel 4. But Malachi Kirby got the voice and the mannerisms of Darkest Howe excellently portrayed. It's like carbon copy. So that was... For me, the best performance of the series. Okay, and now to, just to finish off, we'll look at a bit more of a lighter affair, which is uh, Lovers Rock. Lovers Rock is uh, it's basically just a story um, of a of a party, um, and it's you just sing the night. It's really about the music, I think. Um, Sarah, did you um, did you enjoy the uh, Lovers Rock? I enjoyed the music. Yeah, the music was fantastic. Yeah. The music, but. There were some things there that was a little bit over the top. For me, the smoking of the, you know? Weed. You can say the weed part. on this program, Mom. That, <laughs> that, that was too much of it. Because in those days, when you go to a house party, you, you don't see it, but you can smell it. And if whoever is um, marshalling the party, they'll try to find out who it is and put them out. But in this one, they were just doing it, there wasn't too much of it. And another thing again, when they were dancing, the smooching, and blokes, they were grabbing up the girl's bumps. <laughs> the, the girl, they would push her hand off. And if they continued, they would, the girl would just walk off and left him on the dance floor. All that was was a little bit over the top, and the um, hmm. the, the smoking. I, I think I think he went to quite nice parties. You see, yeah. <laughs> other than that, with all the big cooking up and all that, all that was was real. That's how it went on, and like how they are to they have to clear the room, take out the settee and the cap, lift up the carpet and everything. All that was right. All that was spot on. Yeah. Mum, did you did you enjoy Lovers Rock? Each episode, I was writing down a little notes, and when it got to Lovers Rock, I thought there's nothing to say about this. 
and then realized it was just a group of black youths having a party, enjoying themselves, but there was no harassment, no brutality, and I realized that was why I was wanting what to write, because it was more what I knew of as normal young people together enjoying themselves. And I thought at the right at the end when that girl got home, <clears throat> got into her bedroom, got into the bed without anybody seeing her. And then she was called as it was time to go to church. And she just got out of bed looking just as happy. And from what I could tell, she was quite happy then to do what her family would expect for her to go with them. And so I thought it was a very interesting ending. So, um, so yes, it was nice to see that episode where there wasn't any brutality. Yeah, I, I think that might have been the point of it, a bit of a kind of light. Uh, I wonder why they didn't put it at the end, maybe, uh, the last film to be shown is a kind of, you know. But, um, okay. Uh, what did you, uh, have you had your view on this, Trevor? Um, no, not yet. But um, I'll try and say as many things as I can as quickly as I can. I think one of the reasons why it wasn't the last film is because I think this film opened um, the Sundance Film Festival in 2019 or 2020. So this would have been like the the, the tentpole film or the flagpole film of the series. Um, I think another good thing about Lovers Rock is it wasn't a crime story as well. It was more focused on the, the culture and the music. And this was identified by um, the singing of Janet Kay's Silly Games, which um, interestingly enough, over the last two months, mm. it's just become a YouTube sensation now of people who've watched the series Small Axe coming in and commenting that Small Axe was the first time they ever heard that song. And the song it has an interesting um, place in this story because it ends up being a kind of a call response situation where you can see a moment where in the sound system of the DJ in the house party, um, everyone in the room knows the song so well or loves it so much. They actually sing it again in acapella mm -hmm. and it kind of creates a different sense and tone in the room. But that was almost like the girls or the women's song. And then they actually, and Silly Games is more like, um, it's more like a R&B pop song. But then there's a kind of what I would call a roadman who kind of comes into the house party and kind of changes the vibe when he becomes the MC, And he ends up creating this um, vibe when the jam, when a lovers rock uh, and the jam rock starts playing. And it's more of like a reggae vibe. And then the men are dancing to it and there's no women on the dance floor. And there's this kind of ethereal kind of um, energy. And it's not aggressive but it's more like um, a release or, and a, a, kind of, um, a kind of a pride thing going on. So it's, it's very interesting how those two moments of music were allowed to kind of change the energy of the room and the people who were in that room 
and there's a bit of an irony that the um the police siren is used at the end of each song because um i mean i don't know personally but from stories my uncles and godfathers told me that sometimes you would have a house party and if it got too loud um you might have neighbors knocking on the door and um raiding the uh, place particularly if there's, there might be drugs involved or if people were being too noisy and they didn't turn the noise down but i don't think there was time to tell that part of the story so the the police sirens was part of the music but it was also an ironic gesture that they're in a house party that could get raided at any moment so i found that quite interesting and there was another little thing which was a nod to the kind of smally island culture which was um in the beginning of the film um as the sound system are clearing out the house party the house to make room for the party later in the evening they move a grenade flag and it and the family actually wants it put back because it's kind of a jamaican sound system coming in but they're trying to remove all of the other artifacts so it's nice that the smaller islands or culture is culture of culture in the caribbean have got their recognition and it's not just predominantly this is only about Jamaican culture. This is only about Trinidadian culture. Okay, then. Um, so we're going to wrap up now. Um, uh, mum. Mum, my mum. Um, <laughs> uh, is, is there anything you want to say before we, we say goodbye? The one thing that I do remember in the 50s and 60s, because, of course, I had a sheltered life. Um, because obviously I lived in, well, in Camborne, I haven't moved. So um, I didn't know any of, any of this because there wasn't the social media then. We didn't have a television then. Um, but the one thing I do remember was Enoch Powell and his comments. Mm. And I do remember that. I'm wondering why is he like this? But mm. I had no idea how bad things were. And at the end of watching those five episodes, I felt ashamed. Ashamed to be British. Mm. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know. I mean, it's gonna. Yeah, you do feel a bit kind of a bit helpless, really. And um, mm. it, well, it's it, an awkward chapter in in British history, but. It, it, the thing is, there were some interesting things that came out of that era, which was like things like the Notting Hill Carnival and like the crossing over of um, people into like mainstream society in, in different jobs and positions. But I think, yeah, there, there's certain personal stories that haven't been told and it's probably a bit of a shock now to hear it for the first time because... Not because it, just because it happened, but I think also because the story's been suppressed for so long. Uh, uh, Sarah, would you like? To, is there anything you'd like to say before we go? Yes. Um, what I would like to say, we have come a long way because, as I said in the beginning, English people didn't know much about us, and we didn't know much about English people. But we have learned a lot now. Both sides have learned a lot from each other, and we have come a long way even though things could be still be better, but we are learning. So things, I hope things will get better, you know? Mm. None of us are perfect, but we are working at it. And Stephen, I wanted to ask you a question, actually. Um, where do you think 
what do you think this series has done to the profile of the BBC and perhaps what we can expect of mainstream drama? It's the sort of thing you'd expect a BBC to do, this kind of high profile. I mean, it's their sort of remit, kind of, um, you know, Steve, I mean, Steve McQueen is, is maybe Britain's greatest direct, best director at the moment. So to get him involved, I mean, the BBC has clout, the BBC. I don't know, would anyone else be able to make it like this? Would it Amazon or, or Netflix? Would they have done it differently? I think you could have expected this from a Channel 4, but it felt like BBC hasn't touched on a project like this for a long time because I think going, I think the only real project where you can say there's been an ensemble ethnic minority cast before this for the BBC, it feels like the real McCoy comedy series. Because, I mean, you get spatterings of black actors and performers in different shows. But as an ensemble cast, it's very rare that you would see it on the BBC. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see. Uh, did, so, are you got anything more to say, Trevor? I, 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 I well, BBC, well, BBC is showing small apps on iPlayer for the next uh, 11 months. Catch it if you can. All five episodes are available uh, commercial free. I enjoyed it very much. I recommend you watch it too. Okay, thank you very much, Trevor. Um, thank you, Mum, for joining us. Right. Nice to meet you, Elizabeth. And nice to meet you as well. Yes. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you, Mum, for um, for uh, being on a bit and quite quite openly honest about it. And um, it was good to hear. And thank you to you too, Sarah, for joining us. And very yeah. interesting to hear all your thoughts. And thanks, Mum. You know, maybe a part two one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I'm Stephen. Um, this is being Geek Sweat. Um, I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, it's quite interesting, I think. And uh, see you again soon. Cheers. Okay. Bye. 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 bye.